Welcome to the Champagne Comedy Podcast, made by fans for the fans. My name is Matt, and this is a shonky best of edition because we haven't had time to make another episode yet and we're trying to patch it out. So, if you're just new to this podcast, we watch and discuss episodes of ABC TV's The Late Show, which broadcasts from 1992 to 1993, starring the D-Generation, or now known as the Working Dog Crew. And we're just big fans, we truly are. So at the time of this recording, we've completed 29 episodes and spoke to D-Gen cast member Jason Stevens all about the behind the scenes and asked him all the nerdy questions we could. So check that in our podcast feed. You'll find the episode there. But just to point out, he's not the first we've interviewed and this is where this episode comes into play. We've compiled a collection of interviews for you, so you don't have to waffle through the overstuffed episodes that we've already done. To start, here's comedian Bruno Lucia. You may remember him from the show Altogether Now. You know, Wayne. Yeah. So, he was talking about his cameo in Shit Scared Season 1, Episode 10. Episode 12. Have we got the footage there? Let's have a look at it. I blame myself. Because I'd asked the fight, I naturally thought that he'd let the clay pigeon go, and he obviously, predictably, shot my gun. But I went to hospital, 47 operations, cosmetic surgeons did a marvellous job. Do you know what? They had to work from photos of me given, given to them by Mick. Photos. Okay, Robert, just about got you out of here. I think they've done a pretty good job. <laughs> In 1992, you briefly made an appearance or a cameo on The Degeneration, The Late Show. Oh, yes. Yes, when shit-scared Rob gets some plastic surgery done because of an accident. And the joke was that as the bandages came off, Rob turned into Bruno Lucia. What was that like to be a part of that comedy sketch? Mate, I've got to tell you this. I'd forgotten about that. And uh, I remember I was, was during a break. I was doing a show in Adelaide, and I had to come back. It was just a one-off, you know, club that I did. No, two nights here in Adelaide. And I came back to Melbourne, and um, I, I obviously knew of the degeneration, but I hadn't seen that previous sketch that they'd done, all that character. And um, so I quickly had a look, and uh, oh, mate, I was uh, I was nervous as anything meeting them, you know, because I, you know, I was in awe of those guys. I I loved them. <laughs> we had a great laugh. It was easy to do. You know, it was over in uh, 10 or 15 minutes, so wonderful to work with. So uh, I think Santo was um, directing that at the time, too. They were rating very, very well at the time, weren't they? They were looking some big goals. It was quite a popular show at that time, wasn't it? I was also, you know, I'm not worthy, you know, thinking, but they just, you know, it was, once they explained it, it was, uh, yeah, no, it was so easy to do. In Season 1, Episode 13... Tony Martin's segment, Undiscovered Masterpieces of the Cinema, featured a dodgy B-grade Australian horror film, Houseboat Horror, starring Countdown announcer Gavin Wood and also John Michael Housen. 
But we interviewed Gavin Wood. Episode 13. Time for a new segment called Undiscovered Masterpieces of the Cinema. Don't be scared. Uh, We don't have one of those signs, unfortunately, because it was an accident in the art department. So instead, Maria from our studio audience is helping out. Give her a hand. It's a kind of uh, consumer guide to the hidden gems that lie buried at your local video shop. And this week, well, we've got an Australian film because it was the AFI Awards last night. And I don't know why this film wasn't nominated, Houseboat Horror. There it is there. And it's described as Australia's first made-for-horror video, or made-for-video horror spectacular. Our finest actors, listen to this, you've got Alan Dale from Neighbours. You've got Animal, remember the drummer from Hey Hey Saturday? And in a bizarre cameo, John Michael Hausen. Now, also in the cast is, uh, remember this guy, Molly Meldrum's countdown sidekick, Gavin Wood. And uh, he proves himself to be a master of improvisational dialogue. Hey guys, girls, party time, come up here. Oh, excuse me, magnificent, you're far up. <laughs> Could that have been scripted? Now, the, uh, the rock video angle of uh, Houseboat Horror allows the filmmakers to indulge themselves with some truly spectacular musical numbers. Have a look. You'll be pleased to know that most of those characters are subsequently hacked to death by the killer. <laughs> and I think that was one of the knockout Brian Mannix song hits I referred to earlier. Now, we can't really show you any of the blood-gushing mayhem from this film, uh, but we've got one moment here, but I should warn you, it may be too intense for nervous or sensitive viewers. Hey, Jimmy Costello, which was always the name, if I ever went bust in radio and creditors were trying to find me, I'd get I'd, I'd go over to Perth and uh, and get a job on radio there, and my name would be Jimmy Costello. That was <laughs> that that was my alter ego. Oh wow! So you, yeah. you got you got to play with that and be in your own little imaginating world, really playing that character. Yeah, that that was a lot of fun. I mean, that that movie. Uh, I mean, people are still talking about it. It's like Countdown, you know. It's it's it, it was done with, you know, the best intentions, and it was done with heart. But that movie uh, was done for ten thousand dollars. Wow. Uh, yeah, we got ten thousand dollars out of the underground disco, uh, <laughs> and it paid for uh, some some of the crew. Uh, I did it for nothing. Uh, a lot of people did it for nothing. They they ran out of money for catering. So one day we got lettuce sandwiches for lunch. Oh, wow. That's when we realized that things aren't going too well here. The director, uh, Kendall Flanagan, had a heart attack uh, halfway through and couldn't continue on. So so Ollie Martin had to carry on and be, be the director. Oh, it was just, it was a mess. The, uh, the film crew and the television crew, uh, it was kind of half-half. And the film crew hated the television crew because the television crew were all falling down drunk, and and the film crew were very professional. Uh, so there, <laughs> there was a lot of that. There was just a lot of booze. 
and and uh, I think we worked for booze for two weeks up at Eildon. You know, it was it was look, we we'd never made a movie before, and I think you know just the the idea of making a movie was very romantic, and and we did it. God damn it, you know, albeit that bad, but we did it. The the line that you're really known for in that movie was saying the view's magnificent, you'll bar up. Now, yeah, yeah. was that an improv line or was that in the script? Yeah. No, it wasn't in the script. They just they just said, get up there and, and be excited about the view. And I went, oh, God, okay. I said, hey, fellas, girls, guys, come up here. It's magnificent. The view's, the view's magnificent. You'll bar up. <laughs> and, and then they went, perfect. <laughs> that is <laughs> amazing. And isn't it funny, just a simple little thing like that, you know, it stands out and and remains part of the uh, part of the culture. I I, I think it's magnificent that uh, this uh, ten thousand dollar movie is still getting people talking about it. It's it's quite amazing. A few years ago, I think it was the first APR Tom Alive tour, and Brian Mannix uh, was in town, and so we did a presentation yeah, with him. Yeah, and I showed him. Yeah. I, I tracked down the copy of Housebat on DVD and showed it to him, and he just laughed his head off, and he goes, "Mate." This is a pure piece of shit. I love the fact that it is shit. Yeah, yeah. And on the front, it's got with snappy Brian Mannix hits or something, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> knock out Brian just Mannix hits and he just knock rolls out, his Knock eyes. out Brian Mannix hits. That's right. Because he wrote all the music. Yeah. <laughs> he goes, there was a lot of fun times. Not necessarily in the movie, just a lot of fun times during that movie. It so. basically was. It was just uh, controlled chaos and... Um, and as I said before, a lot of VB. Season 1, episode 14 is known for a particular segment, Postcard from Glen Rowan, where Mick and Tony did a road trip to the Ned Kelly Museum to bring out the best of the worst of the iconic landmark. So we spoke to one of the owners, Chris Jarrett. Episode 14. No, I can't seem to work it out. It's got to be close now. Hey, hey. All right, scene of the Kelly siege. Right on 12, Tone, hurry up and we might catch some tucker at the Billy Tea Rooms. Well, here we are, Mick, the bustling town of Glen Rowan. Yes, and Tone, fortunately, we've missed the crowd, uh, which I think subsided around the 1800s. Mick, I'm not saying they've cheapened the Ned Kelly uh, history here in Glen Rowan, but check out what they've done to his helmet. Jesus, look at that. (laughs) Good shooting. You are Ned Kelly. Your money or your life, Mick. He said, it's Ned Kelly's ye oldie wishing well. So while I'm here, I might just make a bit of a wish myself. Oh, damn, I'm still in Glen Rowan. This is it. The Ned Kelly animatronic show. But be warned, this attraction can and does frighten people of all ages. Can't hurt me. I'm what sort of man would spend over two million dollars creating this we met him you've been running the museum for how many years Nearly 36 years. I did go and have a look at the clip and the kids knew all about it. So funny, I didn't and uh, I didn't realise that they'd actually been in the shop. 
<laughs> it must have been a day, you know, that maybe a day that we weren't there and uh, we had staff on. So mm. what did you think altogether? Did you find it a very tongue-in-cheek? I'd seen the humour before, yes. Oh, it was like a, like a lot of other ones we've had um, over the time. I thought it was it was quite light and enjoyable and um, it certainly appealed to that, that the age group, the um, 30 to 50 age group, yes. If I could get you to describe the actual museum itself. You step through the back of our shop into the museum and it's a, um, a static display. The, it tells the, the, the history of um, basically from when they migrated out here to the events of Glen Rowan. And then you've got a replica of the ramshackle hut as described by the commissioners when they went out to interview Mrs Kelly after Ned Kelly was hanged and Dan had died in the siege of Glen Rowan. They went out to interview her and they described her as being in, in a pretty dismal condition and... Um, the Ramshackle Hut, and of course, there was a song written out about written about the Ramshackle Hut. After that, as well, from the clip that you saw, how much of your museum and display has changed since? The whole town has changed a lot. Um, the, the town's changed heaps since that, and, and amazingly enough, during COVID, um, there's four new businesses have opened at the end of um, end of last year, and the town's got a real buzz about it. There's um, a lot of new, like younger people coming in, and you know, with with new ideas, and that the whole the whole town is changing, and even property, like a lot of property has. I don't think there's a house for sale at the moment. Houses have been being snapped up within 24 hours. Blocks of land are selling really well. Who was the gentleman who rang the bell? Oh, that's um, that's Bob. Um, that's Bob Impel. He's in his 80s now. He's retired. He's actually. His um, grandson, Jess, is running it now and he's doing a great job. Your light display um, of the shootout that you've got on, how much did that actually cost? That's the sound and light show. Okay, that's a separate thing. No, it didn't cost all of that. Bob's a real showman. And one day there I was um, looking at his new sign many years ago about how much it cost and uh, he said, oh, just a slight exaggeration. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. In regards to the the Late Show clip where Tony throws in the coin into the wishing well, A, is the wishing well still there? And B, have you heard people say, damn, I'm still in Glen Rowan? (laughs) Um, The wishing well's still there, but no, I don't get anybody tell me that, damn, they... uh, No, 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 I don't. Now, (laughs) so after when this podcast episode gets released, will you be keeping an ear out for anyone who... Actually, does that now? I always certainly hop- will. I certainly will. The <laughs> funny thing, I asked my kids, like they're in their forties, and I said, uh, I rang my son, and it was like, yes, you know, well, he knew all about it, and I didn't. <laughs> I was it. and um, and her daughter um, was talking to someone in Benalla, and they were discussing this only a week or so ago. And I thought, well, somehow or other, I've been out of the loop. <laughs> but I tell you what, that you do hear all the time is they buy a Ned Kelly souvenir and they'll say, this is going straight to the pool room. Ah, there we go. I love that, you know. And so much so that the dialogue that um, I put on the, um, there's a, we, we have um, Ned Kelly armour and um, that my husband makes and he does, a, he does a great job of them. 
and it'll be great for your bloke's bar, etc., etc. Um, or it can go straight to the pool room. The season one final of The Late Show featured a song parody of Frente's Accidentally Kelly Street named Accidentally Was Released. We reached out to lead singer Angie Hart, who expressed her thoughts on the amusing piss take, or pistake, nearly 30 years later after broadcast. Episode 20. How did your original music clip come about? The video clip for Accidentally Kelly Street was um, produced by Robbie Douglas Turner, I believe. And it was our second video ever. Um, and our first one was for Ordinary Angels, which I think, you know, by the by the fluke of having never done one before, it came together quite beautifully. And um, then when we got to Accidentally Kelly Street, I guess that's when you kind of actually have to produce something and we didn't know what we were doing. <laughs> I think that it quite it showed in in that <laughs> video clip. So yeah, I think concept wise, it was it was a lot looser. And I think as far as a band we um, performing, we had no idea how to do video clips. Now you, you've watched the Late Show clip itself. Are you uh, a fan of the Degeneration Late Show Working Dog People? Yes, I was. Yes, and am. <laughs> Did you watch this when it originally went to air back in nineteen ninety two? I'm not sure if I saw the, the the moment. I'm not sure if I was watching the show the moment that, that it went on air, but I obviously would have become aware of it quite quickly <laughs> <laughs> after it after it aired. I, I may have been watching it that night. I do remember my heart sinking <laughs> by the time I, I did see it. <laughs> <laughs> well, were you and the band flattered at all by it, or did you uh, were you a bit unsure about it? I don't know how everyone in the band felt about it. I, I was a lot younger than everyone else and I was struggling pretty hard with our image at that time because we already, at Kelly Street was being thrashed on the radio and um, we were, I think right around that time, there was a title in, in a an article in a music mag somewhere that um, labelled us as the most annoying band in Australia. Oh. And being <laughs> in my late teens, early 20s at that time, it was pretty hard to take. So... Um, I personally w- was quite upset by the video when it came out. I-, I think probably some other members of the band may have been, and I also think some members would have found it quite entertaining, depending on their age. Being lampooned by that national comedy show, did it feel like that it helped reach your celebrity status even higher, or did everything become the same when that all happened? Uh, it was all like quite out of control at that stage. Like we had, it, the whole thing had skyrocketed and and so I can't tell you know what was what it it was to me quite it was moving very fast and this was one of the things that happened during that time I can see now that it was a great compliment and and that it's awesome Uh, but at the time it, it just made me want to run and hide now I sent you the clip of the DVD commentary of Mick um, yeah. <laughs> would you know if that was true 
at all about a certain band member's relationship falling apart due to that sketch? Um, I'll have to go and ask members of the band if that, uh, you know, had, had not come to my attention. So I'm trying to think of who that would be and who, who the partner would be, but um, not that I know of. That's cool. <laughs> <laughs> Or not that they were aware of. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. When you've done your live performances, have people in the audience mentioned anything like that, like uh, saying accidentally was released, just uh, highlighting the fact that they're aware of that lampooning? Uh, People do say that they loved it and did I love it and, you know, that they they parallel them often because I think, you know, fans of of our band were fans of the show as well. How do you feel overall with this pop culture status that you have with this generation? How do you feel about the reaction today? It's, it's amazing that it's reached so many people and, and to go through the filter of them being parodied or lampooned and, and, and twice, you know, like dub, double filter, it is, I guess that really embeds it into pop culture. So that's that's a pretty amazing status to reach <laughs> if only you know in, in cult status it's it's a pretty big deal um and and there's part of me that still cringes <laughs> yeah. everyone cringes at their own past you hit the nail on the head it's a, it's an awkward time to be in your early 20s so you know <laughs> what can you do yeah i'm on angie hart's music on mo- most of the platforms that's how you'll find me H-A-R-T-S music. Thank you for being a great sport about this too. (laughs) Thank you. The Gold Coast, known for Warner Brothers Movie World, Warner Brothers Movie World and Warner Brothers Movie World. Oh, and also piss four soaps that were so bad they copped a parody from the D-Gen. Australian TV historian Andrew Mercado chats about the parody as well as the glory of a TV show that is Warner Brothers... Sorry... Paradise Beach. Episode 21. If you haven't yet seen uh, Paradise Beach, what we're going to do now is give you a brief two-minute synopsis. Hey, Roy, here we are in Paradise Beach, establishing the fact that even though we're only supposed to stay for two weeks, we might end up being permanent characters. Oh, you're mad, Sean. You're crazy. Hey, Hey, Warner Brothers Movie World. Gee, Tori, it's hard to believe that you and I, who were once pen pals, would end up here together looking really pretty and having brothers that we can reciprocally fall in love with. Hey, Kirstie, who's that? That's my brother, Kirk the Iron Man. He's rich, handsome, successful. I bet there's no evil side to him. Of course I'm the important businessman figure. I'm the only one over 35 in the series. Besides, I'm talking on two phones at once and I'm about to go over to the fax machine. Damn it. Mom, I want to get married. But didn't you used to be Tiffany Lamb? Sell! Sell, damn it! Oh, hey. You seem like the silent type. No, I'm just a model and I struggle with dialogue. Why don't I take you out tonight in one of those thinly veiled falling in love scenes. That'd be great. Yeah, we can point at the stock footage of Paradise Beach. I'll get out of your way so you can do your falling in love scene to camera. Excuse me, guys. Hey, you must be a photographer. No, I'm just Matt Latanzi. I'm looking for a former game show host with a really bad American accent. She's in the next scene. Hey, Warner Brothers Movie World. I've never pointed at so many things before. Hey, look. Warner Warner Brothers Brothers Movie World. Someone say something that will make people tune in at the same time tomorrow night. I know, we've been axed. Hey everyone, rock music. (laughs) What was your role on Paradise Beach? I was uh, working for the Queensland Tourist and Travel Corporation in North America when they were selling the shows 
to American TV stations. They got their syndication deal, sold it in everywhere to play in a US summer and get all of the young American kids hooked onto this new show. And I remember when they put the sales reel together for Paradise Beach, they were using footage from tourism productions and also they had heavily borrowed footage from the movie The Cool and Gatta Gold, you know, which was great surf lifesaver footage shot in, you know, 35 or 70 millimetre, you know, it was, it, was, it was impressive and the trailer for it was really impressive. And then, of course, the show went to air and it didn't look anything like that trailer. And I ended up becoming the location manager on Paradise Beach for about the last six months uh, of the second series. But I remember that late show skit very well. Given my role in sort of seeing what it had been promoted as and then watching it go to air, yeah, that late show skit really got me in the gut. Can you explain to us what, uh, for the people who may be too young or just weren't aware of the show at the time, what Paradise Beach was actually about? Paradise Beach was a show that Channel 9 were screening before their 6pm news at 5.30. The stuff that the late show sent up in the skit, I mean, people might watch that skit now and go, oh, wow, they're exaggerating. Look, they really weren't exaggerating. I would say that the first couple of months of Paradise Beach is some of the worst television that's ever been made in the history of Australia. It was really bad. It was kind of cut together sometimes like it was a music video clip. Uh, They had hired models and not given them any acting lessons, so the performances were very wooden. And because it was a village roadshow production, they had done these sort of, they were trying to corporatise the tie-ins. And so when everyone in the Late Show does this thing about, oh, look, there's Movie World Studios, Warner Roadshow Movie World or whatever they say, I mean, that really happened in the first week of Paradise Beach and it was really clunky. And it was really an example of how not to make a TV show and the fact that that skit got made and was so accurate as to what had gone to air in those first couple of months of Paradise Beach. Uh, It it should have been a real wake-up call for them, and I think it was. I mean, they had terrible reviews for the show, and they did then get in acting coaches and start giving acting lessons to the main cast. And I, I would say to you that the show rapidly improved, but, you know, it was starting at a pretty low base, and it did get much, much better, but it's really hard to uh, ever forget or uh, outlive um, a color, the opening week's episodes, which are terrible. When you start off bad, there's really not a lot of places you can go to. What would be your best memory or that they can legally say about your time on the show or that you remember witnessing or watching in the actual series? Because the series did last for two seasons and 260 episodes. So there's got to be at least a really cheesy nugget of gold in there somewhere. Oh, look, um, I thought that it's a real shame that the show got axed when it did because it's one of the few times in Australian TV history where a show got axed despite its ratings going up. The fact was that Paradise Beach did improve enormously. It was on the up and up, but there was a problem. 
The problem was that uh, all of these kids were starting to discover it and watching it as what they'd always wanted. But then when 6 o'clock came, they didn't want to watch the news. They switched over to The Simpsons on 10. And Channel 9 then went, oh, well, we've got to get rid of this show and get a show that gets old people watching, like The Price is Right, which is what they ended up axing and replacing it with, so that they don't switch the channel for the news. And you, you, you look at that and just go, um, did nobody at Channel 9 realise that the whole point of making a show called Paradise Beach was to get the kids watching. How did they only realise that two years down the track when it was doing exactly what they wanted it to do? I mean, what a dumb decision it was. They shouldn't have made the show if they didn't want kids to be watching something before the news. So it was all a bit of a disaster. But look, I have uh, some really happy memories of those um, the, the, that show. It was a lot of fun to work on. And I distinctly remember the night that Isla Fisher, uh, and that was her first TV breakthrough role, she celebrated her 18th birthday and she was dancing on the bar. She got up on the bar and was having a dance and the bartender was like, uh, could you tell her to stop telling everybody that it's her 18th birthday? She's been coming to this bar for the last you know, six months, um, and we really don't want people to know that she was underage. It's really, really funny. <laughs> That's brilliant. So, and there's a you know a reason why it's never been rebroadcast in Australia or released on any media platform, at least because it's something that they weren't too proud of. Well, look, the problem is that if uh, you know, why not uh, give it a go? I mean, it, it taps into that '90s nostalgia. There were people who watched the show and loved it who'd uh, want to watch it again. The problem with it would be, though, is that you would have to start with those first episodes, which are really, really bad. And you'd have to kind of churn your way through some really bad episodes, waiting for it to get better. And it does get better, but it's whether or not people today have the time with streaming services to sit around. But look, there, there would be a nostalgic kick to it. There'd, there'd be an audience for it. Um, but Village Roadshow TV division seems to have shut down. So I don't think there's anyone in the company anymore that sort of uh, knows about it, remembers it, cares about it, or understands that there's actually uh, a title there that they could maybe see if they could make a bit of money on today. And yet the truth is that when they do uh, put um, Australian shows uh, online, things like A Country Practice on 7 Plus and The Secret Life of Us on Netflix, uh, they can absolutely go off and kind of uh, tap into this, uh, find a new generation of viewers and people who watched it when they were kids who want to watch it again as adults. There is potential there. From adventures at Piss Week World to a fun-loving canine saving Havenswood, we convinced Justin Anderson, or you may know him as foolhardy cousin George, to come on the podcast and talk shit. Good shit, that is. Episode 21. Charlie the Wonder Dog, starring Charlie the Wonder Dog, the Piss Week Kids, and Charles Bud Tingwell as Gramps. Charlie, we love you. You're making the leap from Piss Week World to suddenly being in this sort of pastiche, if you like, of, of kids' shows like Skippy, for instance. So like, how was Charlie the Wonder Dog sold to you? It's vastly different to, to the Piss Week World stuff. It was pretty much like we have a script... We'll tell you about it, uh, but we don't really have a script. They're pretty much feeding us the lines as we're going and making it up as we're going along. Um, 
again, Sato with a handy cam. That first episode was shot at Rob's brother's house up in Balungarook, which was out near Gisborne. Um, I didn't realise that Bud was going to be there. We didn't know anything like, when we got there. Like, we didn't know what we were doing. We were just like, you've got to be at this address at this time. Huh. Uh, catering, I believe, was drive through McDonald's on the day. <laughs> um, yeah, like I said, there was no real script on it. It was pretty much just like, let's just sort of go with it. They had a rough idea of the points they wanted to hit uh, and a very, very loose sort of script. Um, Bud would actually handwrite all of his script lines on a little notebook, which is something which I, to this day, any acting job I do, I do that myself. Um, just as a good way to reaffirm all of your lines and all that sort of thing. You write them out and get it into your head. and um, It was just great fun uh, to do it. Uh, that was the thickest dog I've ever met in my entire life. <laughs> <laughs> lovely, lovely dog. I'm assuming you all know what happened to him in the end, he, how he died. Snake? No. Snake bite, oh. yeah. He was bitten by a snake. Oh, wow. Lovely dog. I was pretty sure that, you know, like similar to um, – Grand Kennedy getting asked about the dog that pissed on the camera and him just saying that, you know, like, he's fine for a dog that's, you know, over 30. <laughs> you know, like, I, like, I, 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 like, obviously we know that he's, he's gone now, but I, I didn't know uh, that, uh, yeah, Charlie met his end uh, that way. Wow. I, I believe yeah. he mentioned it on the panel. I think he might have oh. at some point, yeah. He, um, and I, I spoke to uh, Tony a couple of years back and he was saying that he mentioned uh, Charlie dying Um <laughs> and he sort of stuffed it up, and people had all assumed that um, it was Charles Bud Tingle at the time oh. and not um, Charles <laughs> Bud So, um, yeah, <laughs> I think that's something along those sort of lines. But, uh, yeah, a great series to shoot. The um, other supporting actors there were uh, James Wright and um, Terry Gill, uh, who were the smugglers, and they popped up again in several other episodes. Yes. Um, as, yeah. they, as, as sort of various bad men. Yeah, and all of the uh, costumes they got for those guys came out of the ABC wardrobe department, and uh, I don't know if any of you guys had ever got a chance to go into that. It was just mental. <laughs> it was literally all these old – it was like a, a an op shop uh, with just all this great stuff from the 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s, and they would just go to town with some of the hats and the costumes were just <laughs> mad. They might have had some front-bottom costumes in there. And they would have um, – Definitely, because you know, obviously ABC, there was all sorts of weird things in that. And that uh, department was directly across the other side of where the actual studio was where they shot So um, for the live stuff, which was really cool. But, uh, yeah, really, really good fun. That was the first one was in the old house um, up in Bulungarook, um, which I believe is the same property that they use for the uh, thing that comes up later in the episode with uh, the siege. Um, oh, Yes. With the, uh, the cult thing, which is the same property that they shot it on, yep. uh, which was kind of cool. So when uh, you, like, it will be your weekly filming, obviously, for every uh, episode, because it lasted, I think, was it nine or ten uh, episodes for Charlie the Wonder yep. Dog? Yeah, there's actually two episodes, I think, that were never shown <gasps> that were shot. Nice. Yeah. yeah. So I don't know whatever happened to them, but one of them involved um, stealing native birds. And all of the birds were actually taxidermy birds that were just sitting on a branch, <laughs> they were literally off the branch and putting it into a bag. Um, I don't know what happened to that episode, but I'm sure it's been finished and it's there somewhere. But uh, there was a few things that they did there. Um, but we shot a few of them in a week, I think. 
Right. Um, well, yeah, like from from my count, there's uh, seven episodes. Yeah. So uh, episode one, two, three, six, eight, and then the pseudo finale in episode ten. Yeah. Um, and then right at the end of season two, we've got uh, Charlie, uh, a very Charlie Christmas. <laughs> Still makes no sense. <laughs> um, well, yeah, I mean, uh, like, not not to spoil it for everybody, but yeah, in in this in the sixth episode, he gets shot, well, assassinated, uh, essentially, sort of almost JFK style. <laughs> after, after 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 receiving a, a bravery medal and and uh, Charles Bartingwell saying the immortal line, he truly is. A wonder dog. <laughs> Funny story on that. Rob actually asked me to throw the dog out of the car, um, and Tommy told him, "You can't throw the dog off the car." It's basically the shooting bit. I like, just push him out. I'm like, no, I'm not throwing the dog out of the car. Wasn't <laughs> <laughs> going very fast, but <laughs> doesn't. Did, did he have Ellie as a backup? Ellie was the backup. She was the stunt dog. I don't think she ever popped up in it. Uh, she was always on set, but she—I don't think she popped up on any episodes. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. Just quickly talking about the episode itself, sort of, yep. it takes a little bit for the audience to sort of get it, but it's at about the time that you see Charlie being yanked by one of the ropes that the, yep. that the audience really starts to get it. It's pro- probably that and also when Charlie is leaving Gramps, quote-unquote, to the children yep. when really it's more yeah, the other way around. dragging him around. <laughs> yeah. They sort of see the, the general crappiness of the series. I mean, oh, yeah. was, that, was that sort of uh, direction sort of telegraphed to you, that sort of... Like the acting can be good, but you're like, you know, it doesn't have to be um, Oscar quality. It can be Loki quality, for instance. <laughs> there was no expectation on acting in this particular one at all. In fact, it was it sort of encouraged to be as bad as possible. And that's why they would barely show us the lines. They're like, there you go, have a look at that, right? Okay, off you go. I'm like, I can't remember what I'm supposed to say next. Um, <laughs> and that shows me what. So I've, I've got a grab here. Quick, yeah. we've got to get a message to Gramps. There's an absolutely brilliant line. One of the, the girls says, it's a stick. It's yeah. a stick. It, it, that's the one. It, the it, is, it is so, so badly acted, and, but oh, brilliantly terrible. acted at the same time. Yeah. It's just, I think one of the other episodes, uh, my brother's saying a line, and it's got an underlying thing, simulated acting under it. Um, <laughs> yeah. Oh yes, uh, <laughs> dead, dead man. Certainly wasn't. One might. Oh, actually, it might not be dead man. So I'm, I'm, no. I'm looking through through the episode list because, um, yeah, we had, uh, yeah, Charlie, yeah, yeah. Like there's there's a few of them on on the DVDs as well. Um, yep. Yeah, there's there's rescue on Mount Variable Weather. There's uh, Charlie uh, as a, a superstar, you know, trying to save. Uh, you know the mean old neighbor's uh, house from from getting bought. There's your tour de force uh, doing the simulated drowning in Dead Man's Weir. Ah, oh. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? That one still kicks around a fair bit. Um, that was shot at uh, Collingwood Children's Farm. I think I'm oh, yeah. um, just on the Yarra in that particular spot there. Um, absolutely shocking performance <laughs> by myself. It was. It was Bad all round, um, but what a great day to film. We, we yeah. had a bit doing that. So, and, when you went for other acting jobs, Justin, did you have to clarify this was simulated acting? <laughs> yeah. 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 yeah, is it? Are clips of this in your show reel? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, Excellent. It's a badge. You've got to have that sort of thing. I've I've never yeah. shied off it. I've 
it's not been something I've always brought up, but if anyone ever brought it up with me, I'd always be more than happy to talk about the story. I, I love being part of the, the Piss Week kids. It was <laughs> a great time. I still have that shirt, I think, that green flannelette shirt somewhere. Did you have to go into any uh, heavy studying uh, with your acting research for Foolhardy Cousin George? How did you play two characters at the same time, Eddie Murphy style? Uh, well, it had to really draw upon myself most of the time to actually sort of find what my dual personality was actually going to be with foolhardy cousin George. <laughs> I, think that, uh, I think they got to a point where they were talking about how um, they had given us all character names, but in the end they just used our real names anyway. It's like, uh, so I think they originally called me Peter in the show and uh, it's like, no, they're just going to call me Justin in the end. They didn't really care. Yeah. Um, but Foolhardy Cousin George was, was just a great fun uh, character. And there's one line that Laura pulls out in that episode, which is still my favourite line from any of the Charlie the One the dog uh, episodes and it's it's so subtle you can't hear it it's almost at the background she goes wow it's lucky you turned up to this picnic in a wetsuit and, uh, <laughs> so great. that line still gets me every single time <laughs> well as you see on the late show facebook page people love you guys <laughs> it's quite funny and we I always love talking about when people ask the question too because it's uh, it is good fun and it was a great time in my life anyway and I really enjoyed being a part of that and also having a chance to work with Bud Tingle as well. Like, uh, yeah. it was just great. Like, we, we shot everything literally on Santo's uh, handy cam. Yep. Uh, Rob walking around with a script or half a script or just written, handwritten notes uh, and Tommy wrangling the dogs um, mm-hmm. and shooting where we could, when we could. And it was, uh, it was just great fun the whole time. And uh, we were doing one episode, I think, and I ended up in a minibus uh, with Tony Martin in the back of the bus practising all of his barge-ass lines, which was just hysterical. <laughs> oh, that's great. Oh, got so early great memories. How does this sound? What do you think of these? <laughs> <laughs> it was really quite good. It was quite good. Excellent. More music parodies and more cliches, just like the things of stone and wood pistake. See, I did it right this time. Lead singer Greg Arnold joined us all the way from Geneva to praise the happy birthday Helen satire. Episode 24. To the MCG and then to the tennis center. Through the Backstreet Mall and down the block of pain. Caught the 96 tram to St. Kilda Esplanade Saw the Westgate Bridge from the top of Linda Street Clocks Saw the Yu Yangs real clear from the foot of Mount Dandenong We've just run out of Melbourne cliches We've just run out of Melbourne cliches The song Happy Birthday, Helen, can you explain to our listening audience what the whole song is all about? Well, it really was a, a birthday present for my wife, Helen. You know, we'd, um, uh, we'd just come back from a sort of hippie trip around India and things and we got to back to Australia and it was all kind of freaking us out a bit and uh, just at that point uh, we... Uh, 
we'd been out to dinner uh, the night before and I just sort of uh, catalogued all our memories that we would have had or, you know, kind of weird memories and things over the three years we'd been together and uh, wrote them in a song for Helen and it truly was a, a birthday present and it was never going to be a song for the band or anything. It was just, I think, a couple of months later maybe I showed the song to Mikey from Things of Sonnenwood and he said, yeah, you know, that's a, that's a pretty cool song. We should uh, do that in the band. So... Uh, Good decision, Mikey. <laughs> <laughs> it's a beautiful piece of poetry. Like looking at the lyrics, it's very, very deep. And oh, thank you. The song itself came out around November 1992 and then ended up in the top 10 arias uh, in February 93. Now, the late show didn't really make any parody of it until June, July of 1993. What was your first response when you saw the late show do your song? Well, well, we got a, a warning, actually, from Frente's manager that, you know, <laughs> it was a, um, you know, I was so nervous about it. I mean, I was really nervous. It was a very personal song, so I was really nervous about it. So we knew what time it was going to be on in the band, sort of all watched it all together and I, I you know I was just too horrified to watch <laughs> and uh the next day I sort of spoke to them and said you know God, what was it like and they go actually it's uh it's pretty funny <laughs> so I I got to say and I, I agree it was it was it was pretty funny so I, I you know we really enjoy, we really enjoyed it and uh you know, I always think it was the, the. In some ways, I always felt like it was the clip they picked up on a funny idea of the clip of us all running around Melbourne and uh, it re, you know really targeted on the humour of that. So uh, you know, I, I loved it. I still absolutely love it. I love the attention to details. It's funny as a band member, you sort of uh, look at the other guys and go, "Oh, they really got Justin there. Oh, they really got Tony and Mikey there," and forget the whole time that they actually did a superb job of mocking me. I was just too busy laughing at the other guys to notice how funny I was. You know. Your original music clip, who directed that and how did the idea of the clip come across? Oh, this guy called Paul Elliott is incredible uh, filmmaker. He always made these really great, it just had great, beautiful colours always in his film clips. So I particularly loved his film clip, the song Single Perfect Raindrop. But he, um, he, he, he uh, you know, a person from Sydney or, you know, they... They got that thing about Melbourne, and they re- he really got into that. He liked getting those features that he recognised as very Melbourneian features. And we were, we were. I mean, I remember one review saying, "This Melbourne band in brackets, this very Melbourne band, you know, has just released a new thing." So, so we probably didn't realise how Melbourne we were, but uh, I think the clip really locked that in, and um, <laughs> and it was good. And certainly, the the parody about that that was. All said and done, was, but you know it was. Oh, I was sort of this a great, great looking clip. He, he made this, you know, very. It's funny people see it now and they go, "Whoa, so nineties." <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we were out on tour when it came out. You know, it was uh, was still in that uh, zone, and we were. You know, it's this funny area, that area of uh, the parody and things like that. But uh, no, we never. We, we had no bad feeling about it whatsoever. It was really a fun, happy thing for us. I, you know, I just thought it was cack. And the, the, the Captain Cook's Cabin, Moorabbin gag, I, you know, I love it. It's a ripper. When you heard those lyrics and Rob Sitch uh, donning uh, the wig to mimic you, was it a decent impression, you thought? or I think he did a pretty good job. But, you know, more than anything, I think, you know, he, he got the thumbs up for... for 
from Helen. Helen said, he's doing a pretty good, he's not doing a bad job there. But, <laughs> a Greg impersonation. And, uh, well, and she actually went, went on the panel and uh, was interviewed in her role for the Red Cross on the pa- panel one evening and was she speaking with, with Rob Stitch about it. And apparently he said, well, you know, they, they took my, my EP to learn the song and make a thing, and they never go back. I want my EP back. So, you know, I hope somehow Rob Stitch has got his happy birthday Helen EP back. <laughs> when you uh, do perform the song in concerts, and I know it's, have you had like about 29, nearly 30 years' worth of people saying the lyrics to... Um, out of Melbourne cliches, or have you slipped in the odd lyric a little bit different from the original at all to pay homage or just to acknowledge? You know, that's a pretty good idea. I think I should. There you go. There's, <laughs> there's your, your million-dollar idea from today. I should do a version of that because I, I really don't like it. Now we haven't it's – a, it's a funny one, that one. So I, I've never never changed or adjusted the uh, – the lyrics to that one, primarily because you know when we sing it, it's really deeply personal song, and I think that's the um, thing about it. Because it's in this sort of fast folk rockin' setting, I you know for some reason I always get that feeling when we're playing the song. I get a big feeling from the song, and you get a big feeling back from the crowd. So it's really nice. The second we started playing that song at gigs, you could just feel it going. Wow, there's something about the way people respond to this song. You know, they they get it, and um, it was a, a big feeling. So you know, we still get that today. Whenever we we play Happy Birthday Helen, it's a, we get a lot of love. It's, it's great. You're a great sport. So you, you take it with pride, and it's just like yeah, it happened, and um, yeah, you, you cherish that. Well, I do. I, you know, I think it was a. a, a as I know I, I said earlier, but I, I think we did get their best joke in their series of the parody series with the Captain Cook Cabin's Moravan moment. So, you know, I just read that. that is, there's some gold right there. Everyone's favourite bell ringer, Piffy, is now grown up. From a season two toilet break to ringing bells for Graham and the Colonel in the studio, Remy Broadway, a.k.a. Piffy, came on the podcast after we rang those bells and grabbed his attention. That's not as disturbing as you think. Episode 25. Please, everybody, go absolutely wild for Piffy. surprise tonight ladies and gentlemen because Piffy is right here ladies and gentlemen Graham and the Colonel's opening theme tune as performed by Piffy I think it might have also helped that certainly with the segment from Pot Life that was shown, like there didn't seem to be anything sort of malicious about it. You seem to be pretty well received by, well, by Bernard, by the Pot Life audience, by the Late Show audience as well. Well, to be honest, I I, I did a lot of uh, talent shows. Uh, So as far as I was concerned, Pot Life was just another talent show. I didn't realise until I saw the the Late Show uh, toilet break that, that burned was actually malicious. <laughs> 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 yeah. 
I just went on and, and won and did my thing and moved on. And then, <laughs> well, <laughs> I, what, what are your memories of, of doing potluck? Because you were seven when you did that, weren't you? Uh, I, I think I was nine, but close enough. Nine, then. okay. Um, I don't have a lot of memories. What the, I do remember because I, I didn't really use the name Piffy outside of my family, and when we were there, the, the Ernie Sigley said, "Oh." Um, his name's Remy, you know, do you have a nickname that you call him? It might be a bit cuter if we use his nickname. And mum said, oh, we call him Piffy. Oh, mum. <laughs> <laughs> Little did I know that that would stick for another 40, 30 years. <laughs> um, so that's my main memory. The other memory I have is that, that for some reason the original show we filmed um, didn't get aired and we had to go back and refilm the, seri- the, the episode for some reason. I don't so know you, you actually performed twice? Yeah. So the one you're seeing was the second performance. Uh, so some, I, I don't know whether, I can't remember, something went wrong with the, the recording. <laughs> I forgot to hit record. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> really silly. Um, I was just really grateful that I won the second time as well because I think, oh, I've got to compete again. That's not fair. <laughs> <laughs> Now, now, see, this is the, the thing we, we didn't know just from the brief uh, clip on, on the late show. So you won the episode of Potluck. Yeah. Right. Yeah. What, what did that mean? Did, did you then get to go into a semi-final of Potluck or what happened? To be honest, I don't remember a semi-final. Um, I did win $1,500 worth of silverware. <laughs> <laughs> and I still what, what every nine-year-old wants is $1,500 worth of silverware. Uh, you still yeah, got it. I still, I still have my silverware. Yeah, so <laughs> down to your kids. Yeah, there you go. This is a So, Remy, what was your experience um, when you, you were called up to actually be on the on the show? Were you in the audience as well at this? No, point? the first appearance, I had no idea what was going on. Um, so they just played it, and you didn't even know that they were going to play it. Not a clue. It was uh, people started ringing me up and saying, "Remy, we just saw you on the Late Show." <laughs> I said, "What's what's the Late Show?" <laughs> 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 uh, so you, you didn't you didn't watch the program. You didn't know what it was. No, I'll be honest. Wow. I didn't know what the Late Show was. Uh, mm-hmm. I was fifteen, focused on school, and then uh, and, yeah, yeah. this happened. They me so, down, gave me yeah. a, a day or two to to prepare, and there I was. <laughs> sitting in this, uh, I think from memory I was sitting in like a green room or something while the show was starting. So I was just sitting there watching that whole thing with the umbrellas and whatever, thinking, well, I don't know what's going on. <laughs> <laughs> so had you, had you come down to Melbourne a couple of days beforehand and done rehearsals no. with the team uh, or? They flew me down from memory. I mean, you know, it was 30 years ago. They, they flew me down that afternoon, I think. I just did my thing and. Stayed the night and flew back up the next day. Did you actually play the Graham and the Colonel song on the belt? Like, did you learn how to do that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they they sent me a recording of the song, and then I just had to listen to it and try and because. And the other issue I've got is there's only there's only eight bells. Yeah, uh, which gives me eight nuts. So (laughs) to this day, I'm not really happy with the sound because it wasn't quite right but i had to do the best with yeah it's amazing it was it's really good <laughs> yeah, yeah it, it did seem like the, the music might have been slowed down a bit just to accommodate the, the the key of the bells but um not not by too much that that you'd really notice i think they, they might they, yeah they might have done that um the, the key to, to be honest i can't remember what key it was in but the, the bells in the key of a it's possible they slowed it down a bit to make it fit but just mm-hmm. like the octave for example like you notice i go up and then i have to go back down to the bottom again and i've got mm-hmm. no incidental so yeah. As a musician, it's a bit frustrating, but it, like you said, it, it worked. 
Yeah, <laughs> good. So they contacted you or, or your family to actually see if uh, you actually, One of my friends who was an old showbiz guy rang up and said, oh, I just saw in the late show. And they said, if you're out there, give us a call. Uh, so my parents rang up and said, hey, you guys said call if you're out there. And we're out there. So <laughs> 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 come on down and fly down. From cooking in your lounge room to singing for your supper. After Mick screwed up a musical finale where Tony had asked to get Frente in the studio, Mick did actually recruit someone, but not Frente. It was What's Cooking's Gabriel Gatte. The TV chef shares his love and passion for laughs. Episode 25. We've got some people in who we... Well, we had a lot of fun at their expense in our last series, but we've got them in, we've uh, we've patched things up, and we've got Frente with us tonight to... um. <laughs> now, Mick, let me just take a stab in the dark... <laughs> You haven't got Frente, eh, have you? You've got Gabriel Gatte. Gabriel Gatte, of course. He's a door and he's a window. He's the ceiling and he's the floor. The room is a little like a black and white movie. The TV's on, that's what it's for. And if you walk really slowly, you can feel the planet breathe. There is no need to feel so lonely now that we have got all on to give. Accidentally, Kelly Street, where friends and strangers sometimes fit. Accidentally, Ruth Kelly, Southland to Bonjour, it's a pleasure. I've, I've got very uh, fond memory of, um, of that particular time uh, 20, 28 years ago because um, it was fun to do. Um, and then there was great reaction from people. <laughs> it was, uh, you know, and I, you know, I still watch it from time to time, and I think it's quite amusing. Television is about entertainment. So uh, when I was um, asked to uh, to do, uh, you know, the late show, um, you know, I, I thought that would be fun to do. Let's go, let's go for it, even if I make a fool of myself. <laughs> So when they actually approached you for this, were you aware of Frente at the time? I, I didn't know much about Frente. I, I kind of knew the tune. Uh, but what happened is that uh, before I was cooking, I was involved with uh, a lifestyle show that was actually the very, very first one of its kind called Everybody. And Jane Kennedy was one of the... Uh, we were four, four presenters, I think, and Jane Kennedy... Uh, was one of them, and I was so we we worked together with Jen before, you know the, the working dogs and all, and all of that. So it is, um, it was if you want, uh, there there was a connection there. They, they knew me, and um, and what's cooking was very popular on television. You know, we got nominated for uh, for a lobby. Uh, it, it was so cooking. It was just starting, but where people appreciated cooking on television, and I think what we did was was pretty good. So uh, it was popular. They had sent me the music that I was playing in my car. <laughs> yeah. I, I was very nervous because I, uh, it's very tricky. Uh, I've done lots of things, you know, on television, but singing um, on a tune in a foreign language and try to make it interesting and funny was, was a big challenge. Uh, they had given me a script, a, a funny script um, that was not the, the real world of words of the the song that um, you know some of them were uh, and I had to modify it slightly so I, I could pronounce the the words <laughs> so people could understand <laughs> and then I added a little bit 
of my own, especially towards the end of the of the piece when uh, you know I put a bit of French in, into it, and it was you know it really worked well. I, I think we did maybe two takes or three takes, um, which which is a relief, you know. And, and I was got in the mood quite quickly, so it, I was you know like. Um, I was pleased because sometimes it can go terribly wrong and you make a, a real fool of yourself. Well, this shows that you're a great sport because, uh, yeah, you did throw in uh, plastic Bertrand uh, towards the end. So, yes. Yeah. <laughs> so. Was, everyone knew that. So I thought, um, you know, let's put that and uh, accidentally Kelly Street, uh, you know, Rude Kelly, I, I put that that French line into it. And, um, and at, at, at the time I was taking, taking singing classes. I have a friend that uh, a good friend that was a, a singer, and um, he had told me that taking uh, cooking uh, singing classes would probably be good for my, my voice projection. So I thought, oh, well, that would be an exercise. So after this musical finale that you performed on TV, were you approached in public at all for people to do a, a more renditions of it? No, not really, but many people mentioned it, and they often talked about the one that John Kerner did. You know, as their two favorite ones. Oh um, wow! And uh, so I was, <laughs> I was, you know, <laughs> it's always nice when people say good things about you. It's pleasant, you know, because it's the business of television, especially with what I do, cooking, is extremely demanding. There's lots of preparations. You've got to look good. The timing is is key. There's never enough time. You know, we, you are never given enough enough time to do what you really want to do. Um, so. Uh, it was pleasing that, uh, you know, it worked well and it was amusing and, you know, it's good to, as we say, to take the piece out of ourselves when you, you know, do something like that. I sent you the audio file of Angie Hart commenting on your act, really, your performance of their songs. What did you think of uh, Angie's feedback? It was good because, uh, well, you know, I became interested in her after singing a song, you know, what an honour. <laughs> <laughs> you know, she, she's very... Uh, you can see she's very amused by it. You know, there's a smile uh, in her voice from the first word she says to to the last one. And, and then she looks, she en- enjoys seeing me at the end on the poster half naked. So, you know, <laughs> I, I think, well, she loves me. I love her. Everything. It, it was a marriage made in heaven. <laughs> Accidentally, Kelly Street, when boys and girls meet in the street. Accidentally, Kelly Street. Well, that's it for the special edition of the Champagne Comedy Podcast. We'll be back in 2022 with more laughs, over-analysis, and hopefully more interviews. If you want to join us on any social media, go to Facebook and check out The Late Show page. You'll see an image on the icon, depending on the theme or whatever. It'll definitely be The Late Show related. Or you can hit us up on our Facebook group, look up Champagne Comedy Podcast, ask the three shitty questions, and you're in. Or you can visit our website, champagnecomedy.com, or subscribe to our podcast on any of your preferred podcast platforms. Or send us an email, champagnelateshow at gmail.com, or follow us on Twitter at TLS Champagne. <gasps> I think that's all of it. Either way, I'm Matthew. Thank you so much for downloading and listening, and we'll catch you in future episodes. Produced by Matt Fulton Productions, mattfulton.com.au.